Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Matt Schlegel is joining me on the show today. He's an author, consultant, speaker, and founder of Schlegel Consulting. But before we get a chance to speak with Matt, it's a Leadership Hacking News. We've all heard of the Great Resignation, right? However, employees say unsustainable workloads and expectations are the things that are driving them to quit. In a recent article by Emmy Lucas of Forbes, she describes that not only unsustainable workloads are one of the top factors contributing to the Great Resignation, others such as uncaring managers, inadequate compensation, lack of career development are all contributory factors. However, a survey completed by McKinsey recently, which queried nearly 600 employees, looked at those who'd left without another job lined up and those who returned to work. Much of the analysis of how to solve the Great Resignation is really focused on giving workers higher pay better career opportunities or nicer perks and days off and mental therapy and help and better family leave. There's been less attention paid to the actual workloads employees have and how employees plan to address that issue. 35% of respondents said unsustainable work performance expectations were the reason that they left their job without another in hand and the same percentage said that they would leave uncaring leaders or a lack of career development. Following these reasons were a lack of meaningful work dearth of support for employee health and well-being and inadequate compensation. But ironically, compensation ranked sixth as a reason for leaving, suggesting that evidence that pay isn't everything. It means something, of course. The report showed that those who work in an environment they like also find purpose in their work and have better relationships and therefore probably stick around. When it comes to returning to work, 47% of the 600 respondents polled and about a quarter of those returned to non-traditional work, whilst three quarters went back to traditional employment. And of that 600 respondents who left without a, another job lined up, 44% of them said that they'd have little or no interest returning to the same job, doing the same work in the next six months. The highest ranking reason for why people did return to work in the work they were doing previously was having a strong identity and policy that addresses workplace flexibility. So post-pandemic workplace flexibility includes not just hours, but flexible places, space, time, empathy, understanding, commitments to the work that they're undertaking. So organizations and employers really need to take a hard look at whether they're ready and can actually deliver on making the right structural changes to actually deal with things like work overload. As we move into the next phase of change, we're already in the future of work. So it's really important that the work itself is prioritized. We tend to want to make those quick and easy solutions, 
but it will take us all effort and time to readjust in the hybrid world or whatever label we choose to give it. So my leadership hack here is often when people leave an organization we conduct exit interviews. I wonder if it is time for us to have stay interviews to really get to the heart of understanding what's really driving the needs and desires of people who want to stay here. And if we listen, adapt and create the right environments for our teams, our co-workers and our organization, we're all going to be the beneficiaries of that. That's been the Leadership Hacking News. Really love for you to share any stories, insights on either our social media or through our website. Let's get into the show. Our special guest on today's show is Matt Schlegel. He's the principal of Schlegel Consulting and Evolutionary Teams. He's an entrepreneur, an ex-tech executive, and now the author of Teamwork 9.0. Matt, welcome to the Leadership Hacker podcast. It is a delight to be here. Thank you so much for having me. It's our delight too. And we always like to kick off our shows to dive in to find out a little bit about the man behind the magic. So tell us a little bit about how you, Matt, ended up doing what you're doing now and moved away from the tech business to help lead evolutionary teams. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. So so like you said, you know, I started out with a uh, tech background, studied um, engineering, electrical engineering. And as I, you know, proceeded through my career, my, my boss came to me one day and said, Hey, Matt, you know, we want you to manage a team. I'm like, why do you want me to manage a team? I know nothing about leading people. I only know about leading electrons. And he's like, don't worry, you'll be fine. Well, I'm not the type to be not worried. And so I, I was worried. And, and when I get that way, what I do is I go and study and get my hands on everything uh, you know, information I could find and learn about, you know, what it is that I'm embarking on as, you know, a leader of, of people. So um, along that journey, I encountered a system called the Enneagram. And the Enneagram is, you know, commonly understood as a personality system, it has nine types that um, are, are in the system. And um, by the time I had had encountered the Enneagram, I had already been exposed to other, um, you know, personality systems in the workplace like Myers-Briggs and DISC and Strength Finders. Or, there's a bunch of them. And so I kind of put it into that category. And um, but, I, you know, I want to use it and I and I tried it and I used it um, for myself and my family um, just to kind of test it out. And I found that it was so powerful and fascinating and helped me understand myself in a way that I'd never understood before and understand my relationships both professionally and personally um, as you know my type interacted with the other types and so yeah so that you know that fascination just led me on this journey of um, exploring it more and more, I started to use it in the workplace and had incredible results. And, and that's um, why I went on to build a consulting practice around that. And, um, uh, you know, eventually wrote my book, Teamwork 9.0, to share, you know, some of the, the learnings that I had along the way. And was there a pivotal moment for you? Because, you know, let's be quite frank about it. You're quite modest. You were, had some big roles in some big organizations. You know, you were part of the Palm Pilot evolution, you know, back in the day. There must have been, you know, 
you were riding the crest of a, a corporate career at one stage and there must have been a pivotal moment you thought you know what I can take what I'm learning and I can share it with others when what actually happened there yeah so it was um you know so my my career uh you know it started out in tech um it started in San Diego I um was raised in the bay area and so when we had um children we wa- we wanted to move closer back you know to to where um, our families are to raise the kids. And so I started on the, you know, just that journey of startups and it was just exhilarating to be in that environment and, um, you know, and, you know, developing new products, you know, cutting edge all the way. And, um, so, uh, you know, being, being in that for, you know, 15 years or so, um, just very intensely, I got to the point, and I guess it was around 2007. It was during the downturn, and um, and I just had this idea of you know one day I wanted to go into consulting and um, have my own practice. And at that point in my career, I th- I said, well, if that's kind of what my long term path is, why not test it out? Why not see if I can start a consulting business and run a consulting business now. And, you know, if it works great, cause <laughs> then I'm, you know, in my dream role, you know, earlier than anticipated. Um, if it doesn't work out, then my plan B just, you know, go back into tech. Well, fortunately and, and gratefully um, it did work out really well. <laughs> and so um, I was able to uh, just go down that path and build my consulting practice and um and i've been doing it now for uh, 15 years this year yeah excellent story so when you talk about the enneagram it's revolved around nine numbers which i guess is what's driven the whole the whole teamwork 9.0 right what is it about the numbers then that is so different with what you do versus then some of the others which are letter driven like disc and myers-briggs and the like Right. As an engineer, you know, one of the things that I found really satisfying about the Enneagram as opposed to some of the other systems is that it it really speaks to, um, you know, our, our evolving over time, how our behaviors change over time. And those behaviors will change depending on our stress level. Are we feeling secure or insecure and our level of maturity? Are we younger? Are we older? And and so this is one of the fascinating things. And if you look at the Enneagram diagram, you'll see these lines within the circle. And that's what those lines are talking about is how it moves. Well, so that was one aspect. But then I did ask that question. Why are they numbers rather than letters? And it turns out there's a reason why they're numbers, and it's because it speaks to motion around the outer circle. And so if you look at the the Enneagram, you just look at the circle and numbers, it looks like a clock, right? And just like the hands of a clock go, you know, clockwise around the circle, the Enneagram is also describing a dynamic of clockwise motion around the circle. And when I thought about it more, I realized, oh, this is describing a process. And these are the steps, the order in that process, one through nine. And it describes the way 
humans solve problems. It's a problem solving process. Right. Once I had that epiphany, I'm like, oh, now I have a problem solving process I can work with my teams on. And it maps, there is a personality type that's perfectly tuned for each step in problem solving. And once you have that, you know, model, then you can have, you know, great success with teams, understanding how to work teams around problem solving to get results. So it's almost kind of decoding the problem inside out, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. And it lets you understand, you know, where your teams are going to be really good at problem solving. It's going to tell you where they might struggle or where, you know, steps they might skip altogether just because there's no dynamic represented by the team at that point in problem solving. And from the top to the bottom of those nine steps, there's a neurological and chronological order in the which way we do this, right? This is another thing that before I really dove into the Enneagram, I wanted to make sure that there was some neurological underpinning to the system. And it's still very early and and we don't have, uh, you know, really a good understanding yet. But I found a fellow who um, described a model of how you could get those nine distinct types out of two parts of the brain, which is the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. Each um, one of those parts, since we have a bicameral brain, you're going to have right dominance, left dominance, and then a middle ambi or ambiguated. And and it's the three states of the amygdala times the three states of the prefrontal cortex gives you the nine types. So that's a model that um, I came across, and and it seems to match well the behaviors described by those states of the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex match well to the behaviors described by the Enneagram. So it kind of gave me, you know, this, um, you know, at least an, a two ways to look at the way people are behaving that were consistent with one another. When we first met at Matt, I had this kind of little bit of an aha moment around the fact that this is where it can really start to engineer great teamwork and thinking because if we're thoughtful of what triggers a reaction or a threat response in our amygdala, which is that part of the brain that regulates the emotion, right. we can maybe think about tactically how we can avoid them and then how we can practically spend more time in our executive thinking, which is that prefrontal cortex. And it was that aha moment for me around, ah, that's why there's nine. And that's how they kind of fit together. Yes, exactly. And and you bring up such a good point. Um, and, and this, you know, speaks to one of the ways that an individual can use the Enneagram is once you understand, you know, that amygdala trigger um, in yourself and what that feels like and, and what, you know, that's going to cause you to do, once you have an understanding of that at an intellectual level, then when you do go into that state, you know, you can know it better and manage it better and then you know bring yourself through it and back out to you know a more secure and healthy state without inadvertently just letting yourself be taken over by the that emotional state 
Right. Yeah. So let's dive into the the nine themes that could be really helpful just to get a sense of what are they and how they work and how they all are related. Right. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'll go around um, in order um, and also describe how each one of the types um, helps in problem solving. You know, so, you know, what's the first step in problem solving? It's, you know, hey, there's a problem. It shouldn't be like that. Yeah. It should be like this. Well, that's the dynamic of, of type one, often called the perfectionist. And the perfectionist is the, the one who's going to like identify, hey, things shouldn't be like that. They should be like this. So then, so that's the dynamic of one. And then um, the dynamic of two um, speaks to, you know, who cares, right? And that's the next step in problem solving is like, you know, if there's a problem, then you need people to care enough about the problem to actually want to do something to solve the problem. And type two is called the helper. And so they're the ones who identify, oh, there's there's something that needs to be done and I'm going to help get that done. So that's that's step two. And that's the dynamic. Then, you know, step three in problem solving is just coming up with ideas for how to successfully solve the problem. And the dynamic of three is um, they're called often called the achiever. And they're the ones who want to succeed. And they're they're always scanning for, you know, what ideas can I you know, work with and execute for an ultimate success. And they also have this wonderful ability to um, suppress their emotion because every time somebody throws out an idea, you know, most of us are going to go, oh, that's a great idea or Ooh, that's a terrible idea. Well, the three um, doesn't have that filter. Uh, and so when they start throwing out ideas, they can generate lots of ideas kind of unfiltered. It's like throwing spaghetti against the wall. <laughs> right. Right. So then you get to step four because step four is to see what sticks. Right. It's that, oh, that's a great idea. You know, it's that um, that emotional reaction to, to any idea. And type four, they're often called the. Um, romantic, but what it's saying is that th they are the most emotionally tuned in to, you know, the emotional content in their environment. But it also in problem solving gives you kind of this emotional filter to pass ideas through so that you outcome, you know, the most positive ideas, the, the ideas that the team wants to pursue and has the emotional energy to pursue because, hey, we still have a long way to get the problem solved, right? Right. So yeah. now we move over into what's called the head group. The head group is the five, the six, and the seven. So after you have your positive idea, then what you want to do is validate that idea. You need to test it. You need to analyze it. You need to, you know, so you do your pro-con analysis, your cost-benefit analysis, and maybe some prototyping to make sure that, that the idea is going to work. Once, once you have validated your idea, then you need to build a oh, and by the way, type five is called the um, analyst or the observer. They're the ones who like dig in and go very, very deep and explore ideas and collect lots of information. So then you go to six, type six, 
which is um, the it's kind of like a planner. They're always thinking about the future and they map whatever they're, you know, wherever they are, connect the dots in the, into the future to a successful completion of the goal. And so you have that idea. Now you map it into the future and you create your plan. Okay. Next step is you need to sell the plan to, you know, the rest of the team or the broader collection of stakeholders and get buy-in. And that's step seven. That's call, often called the enthusiast. So you can imagine a cheerleader, you know, saying, hey, we found a great idea. Let's go. Let's go solve the problem yeah. and get everybody excited. Okay. Now, what have we done? Steps one through seven. Talk, talk, talk. Now we get to eight. Time for action. And so the, the type eight is one of the most action oriented types and they they want to get stuff done. You know, they they're they want to just get get to the point and just move forward. And so and and the type eight dynamic is essentially wanting to secure control of the environment. So it's really a take charge, get stuff done type of dynamic. And then finally we get to nine. You know, you think, oh, after the eight's done. You know, oh, okay, we solved the problem. And uh, inevitably, whenever you have any kind of transformational change, some feathers are going to be ruffled and some toes are going to be stepped on. And so what you want to do is, you know, have the conversations to smooth out and integrate the solution with the broader community. And and that's the dynamic of nine is listening, understanding other people's perspectives and and trying to reduce and conflict and harmonize with everybody. And inevitably in those conversations, people are going to identify new problems, which is why the Enneagram is a circle. And it goes round again. Exactly. Yeah. So that's in a nutshell. That's what that's the really dynamic. Good. Yeah. So. If I completed an assessment on an Enneagram, would it give me a kind of a push and a pull kind of, so I might be strong in a nine, but less in a one would, how would it kind of play out as a result? Right. And um, so that's, that's a great question. And, you know, I, um, you know, advise people when they, they take an assessment uh, to um, just, you know, use it as a process of elimination because whenever most people take the assessment, they score highly on two or three types and low on other types. So you eliminate the low scoring types and you keep the higher scoring types. And, right. uh, you know, so the, the first time I took the assessment, I scored highest on type eight and, um, but I'm not a type eight. It turns out I was a type six and that was my second highest scoring. But I was in an environment where I had to behave like an eight and I was in the environment encouraged me to be like an eight. And so when I'm taking the assessment, it's like, yep, I do that. Yep, I do that. Yep, I do that. But it wasn't really speaking to, you know, the way I would like innately, you know, respond is just my environment was encouraging me to respond in that way. So, you know, that that's pretty common. And so when you have, you know, high scoring on, on several types, then you have to kind of go to that next level of understanding those types, 
understanding the underlying motivators of each types, and then identifying which of those motivations best match with your internal innate motivation. Got it. So is there a naturally occurring opportunity or is there a natural occurring time when it's best to do this? Oh, yeah. You know, I I think that um, it's it's probably okay to do it anytime if if you are um, interested in, you know, knowing more about yourself, knowing what, you know, makes you tick and knowing that you know, having that knowledge will make you, you know, a better leader, a better entrepreneur, you know, it, it just can improve, you know, your, you know, all of the relationships that you have in your life, both personally and professionally. So when you're ready for that, then that's the best time to take the, the test and then start to ask those questions about yourself. You know, what is making me tick? You know, where is it that i um, I excel. Where is it that I'm not as interested and I want to put people around me that can, you know, complement my my skill set so that we can be an ever stronger and more effective team. And I love the, the whole idea as well that, you know, when you, you first did it, you came out as an eight, but actually you recognize you're more of a six. And it's important that we don't just do this once in isolation, that we maybe revisit it from time to time to ensure that we fully understand that how the environment's impacting on our behaviors as well. Right. Exactly. And and the uh, you know, once once you do understand your your dominant type, you know, and I kind of look at it this way. It's like um, handedness. You know, our our brain has dominances that drive our handedness and it will you know people will say they're right-handed or left-handed or maybe um you know they're ambidextrous well the same way with your prefrontal cortex in the same way with your amygdala and so you you know one of these enneagram types tends to be more dominant than the others and so that's you know and that's kind of your starting point and then you can, you know, once you know that, then you can see yourself change over time based on that Enneagram model and those lines in, within the Enneagram. So is there a perfect map for a team? So you've just studied this for years, and I'm just curious to find out whether or not you've noticed a pattern occur over that period of time that says, in order to have the perfect mix across a team, this is what it might look like. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I'll, I'll start off and say, you know, it's highly unlikely that any team that you come across is going to be completely and well balanced. Uh, it's, you know, just, you know, for whatever reason, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to have all nine types represented on your team. And so, you know, when you start to, you know, work with a team to try to, you know, solve a problem. You know, if you have an initiative that you want to, you know, bring your team together to, to tackle, then um, the, the, what I found is you need to pull people in from whatever starting point, from wh- whichever starting point they're at, pull them into the dynamic of that step in problem solving, right? So, you know, step one is that, you know, let's define the problem and take the time to get everybody to think through 
what is the problem from their perspective? And then also think once the problem is solved, you know, what will the world look like? So, so in that step, you're essentially getting your list of things that need to be solved and then also creating a vision for the team of how the world will look like once the problem is solved. And, you know, and even though you might not have any type ones on your team and type ones would just naturally get this, but you can pull people into that if you, you know, if you have, have you direct the team to actually focus on it and make sure that all the voices are heard. And so that's how I use it. I just pull people into that dynamic and then work through the, the various steps so that the team systematically hits each one of those energies. Yeah. And I suspect also if you're highly dominant in any one of these nine then that also becomes then a development area, I suspect. <laughs> right, right. And, and you know, and, and this is, this speaks to, you know, how people want to play to their strengths, right? So they yeah, want, they right. want to jump to that, you know, point in, in problem solving where they're naturally gifted, right? So the eights want to jump right into action, you know, so they already have a sense. I know what needs to happen. Let's just go do it, you know, and they want to jump straight to type eight or excuse me, step eight without having worked through, you know, the other steps. And, and so you, you'll see this in teams, you know, so if you go into a team that is dominated by a, a type eight leader, you know, you'll, you'll find that the team um, has, has kind of learned to just, you know, do what the eight says. And then the, the type eight leader might confide in me and say, you know, I really wish the team would take more initiative and, and, you know, come up with ideas and execute them themselves. Hmm. Well, right. And, 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 and I'll say, well, you know, you, you would need to let them do that in their way working through those steps because not the team might not have that same intuition about what to do that you do. So if you want to encourage them to, you know, take initiative, you have to allow them to do it in their way, which won't be your way and give them the space and the time to work through this process. Hmm. And, and that's, so that's one of the ways I guide, um, you know, my clients who are type eight leaders is to, you know, let them work through the process and let them kind of build that problem solving muscle themselves. So they're not always relying on the type eight leader for direction. Right. And I also wonder if a type eight leader might make assumptions by jumping straight in at eight that could have been identified by going through the steps preceding that. Oh, yeah. Well, of course, you know, there's, there are, you know, when you jump straight to, to action, um, you know, you are having assumptions and you're making assumptions. And, you know, the interesting thing about the type eight, um, you know, they're in the intuitive group, which is the eight, nine, and one. So they already have intuition about what it is that they want to do. The other interesting thing about eights is that they're really um, they don't really dwell on, you know, failure, you know, th they're happy to just jump in, try something. Hey, it, it doesn't work. Okay. Let's, let's adjust and, um, you know, do a course correction and start going in this direction. Right. So, so they will, you know, just 
you know, by always acting, iterate towards the solution without necessarily stepping back and taking time to think things through. Hmm. This this works great for type eights. But, you know, for those of us who aren't type eights, it can be a little uncomfortable because, you know, for, you know, like type sixes, right? We're we're trying to map the dots into the future, right? And we're thinking, but if we do this, then <laughs> this could happen or that could happen. And then our brains start racing on, you know, all of the, the problems and that that we want to try to mitigate, but, you know, rather than, you know, crashing into the wall and then changing direction. So, yeah. you know, and that's, and that's where a dynamic, you know, that's just like a six, eight dynamic that happens on teams. Yeah. So you wrote the book Teamwork 9.0. Yeah. How does that differentiate from the traditional Enneagram? What, what would be the kind of the extra layer of context they get from that? Right. So the, 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 you know, the thing that I really wanted to focus on in my book was that dimension of problem solving. And, you know, there, there are many books about the Enneagram as a personality system. So I didn't want to write another book just about the, the personality side of the Enneagram. What I wanted was to take that and then build onto it that uh, dimension of, of, of working through that outer circle of the Enneagram in the, in the, you know, order of those steps with teams to, um, you know, show that the Enneagram has this other dimension to it of a problem solving process. And so that's where I, you know, I, I, I talk about the problem solving process. I give some um, case studies and anecdotes. Um, I talk about as a leader, you know, what, how do you respond when your team doesn't have a, um, you know, specific strength in problem solving and how to overcome that, um, how to get each of the team members to step up. I call it shared leadership, you know, because if, mm-hmm. you, you know, you have somebody who's really strong at a certain point, well, then encourage them to take the lead at that step in problem solving. I talk about the creativity, you know, each um, type brings a, a distinct creativity to problem solving. So there's, you know, a number of, of aspects that you can apply the Enneagram to when it's in the context of team problem solving. Love it. And we'll have an opportunity to share with our listeners at the end of the show, how they can get hold of some of that information too. Before we get there, I want to dive into and hack into your leadership brain now, having led and worked with numbers of teams all over the world to distill all of that great knowledge and learning that you've had on your career, Matt, and hack into those top three leadership hacks. What would they be? Right. So, you know, the, the, the first thing that, you know, I mentioned at that opening story, you know, is, you know, I, I realize that, you know, um, as a, as a type six, that worrying is a part of my dynamic. And, um, and that is, caused by anxiety so uh, you know the five six and seven are in the the um the thinking group or head group but the underlying issue for for us is anxiety and um i um you know i have this like feeling in my gut that's kind of a, a constant friend i have and i could feel it kind of go up or down like a thermometer and the Enneagram gave me a word for that. It's like, oh, 
that's anxiety. That's what's causing that. Yeah. It, but 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 it's also um, you know it's like a nuclear furnace for me. It gives me tremendous energy. And now that I know what's going on, I can use that. And say, okay, well, where am I right now? Am I feeling comfortable? Are we headed in a good direction? Or is my, are my spidey senses telling me, oh, you know, something's amiss and we need to kind of reflect and and look back. So, um, you know, so that's one way that um, I've, as a leader, learned to just be more conscientious of my internal state, both to, you know, understand myself, but also to make sure that you know, whatever is causing my anxiety doesn't spill out over into my relationships with my team that, you know, might adversely affect our forward progress. Right. So, right. so, so that's, uh, you know, I, I think just that self-awareness is super important. And then, you know, the, the other um, aspect is, you know, once you understand yourself, you can really start to understand the d- dynamics of the other folks on your team. And they really appreciate this because you are understanding them in a a way that helps you better communicate with them, helps them better motivate uh, themselves, you know, and you can put them in roles where they can really thrive and show off their, their natural gifts and, um, and allows you to have deeper, more meaningful conversations with your team so that you can better build rapport and trust with them, which is another key to leadership. And your third? And the the third, I would say, is, you know, when you, um, you know, once you have that, then you can um, understand what your, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of your team. And then you, what you want to do is like realize, okay, I have, I have gaps in my team. I want to make sure that, you know, we have a diversity of perspectives. And I caught, you know, and, and so many people are talking about um, the, the need uh, for, for diversity on teams. And there are many dimensions of, of diversity. But I would also say that, you know, be aware of style diversity because people yeah. tend, you know, to like people like themselves. That's why we have the saying, you know, birds of a feather flock together. And, you know, if you're a hiring manager and then you're hiring people you like, what's going to happen is you're going to build a lopsided team. So just having the understanding of, you know, you know, the value of having a more diverse team in terms of styles, you're going to get, you know, a, a better set of ideas to work with and you're going to have, you know, you know, better overall outcomes because you have all of these different perspectives that are adding to the overall success. I love that last one. Difference makes a difference. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. So the next part of the show, we affectionately call it hack to attack. Okay. So in essence, this is where something is just screwed up. It hasn't worked out well. Maybe it's been catastrophic, but as a result of the experience, you've now taken that as a learning and it's now a force of good in your life or work. What would be your hack to attack? Yes. And, um, you know, so one of the things that I've learned, you know, is, you know, at, as a person who is, you know, somewhat based in, in anxiety, I tend to be on the cautious side. And so I might um, overcompensate on, 
being too cautious. And so that's one of the things I have to, you know, learn. I've learned about myself and then I learn, you know, and this is where I can, you know, value the perspectives of others who, you know, aren't necessarily as, as prone to that perspective and then, you know, tap into that dynamic when I need to. And that's been a great learning for me and it's allowed me to better appreciate the other perspectives and the and the other uh, members of my team so that I can you know rely on them when my anxiety might start to you know get too much so that's yeah. i would say you know one of the you know bigger learnings um that i i've had to you know deal with personally and overcome personally all starts with self awareness again though doesn't it it does. Yeah. It does. And, you know, and that, and I think, you know, that, that was the starting point that self-awareness was the starting point for some of, you know, the best learning and experiences that, that I had in my career. And that's, you know, that's why I got so excited about yeah. this and, and, and wanted to pursue it and, and write the book. Exactly. Last part of the show, we get a chance for you to do a bit of time travel, bump into Matt at 21 and give him some advice and you have a chance to give them some words of wisdom, what would they be? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And if you ask my kids, they'll, they'll <laughs> tell you what it is because they know. And that's, um, you know, learn, learn the Enneagram. Learn um, that, you know, what your style is. Learn, you know, how that's influencing your behaviors and your decision-making. And learn that, you know, your style isn't the only style. It's not the correct style. It's not the right style, you know? And, um, you know, once, once you understand that, you know, there are these distinct styles and that you can now put them into context of, you know, there, there's completely, you know, it's valid to just be, you know, like the type four swimming in emotions. What does that bring to the party? What, how does that help the team move forward with that, you know, connection to, to emotions or, you know, where are the intuitive people, you know, that sense of how, how is that uh, informing the team? And so, you know, though, just that appreciation of, um, you know, where each type is coming from is hugely important. And I think as a young person to be able to appreciate that and, um, and understand the value in it, you know, just makes you have a, a better appreciation for all of your, your, all the people in your life. Great advice. As you're sharing that, you know, I'm thinking I need to get my, uh, my young teenagers and, um, and my kids in their early twenties into this, because actually the more dynamically they're aware of things the more it can help them and also i wonder if this works across the family as well right absolutely you yeah. know it's and, and this is really you know how it's it's commonly used um to help people you know understand you know the dynamics with you know in your personal relationships it's it's you know very valuable for that because then you know you can end up um you know avoiding you know conflicts and um, and understanding if you do go down the path of conflict, why that's happening and then how to get back out and um, a great tool for that. And then young people, you know, they're 
you know, experimenting with different relationships in their life, you know, and then, you know, having a, um, a framework for, oh, okay, well, I'm a, a, a type eight and I was, you know, I had a relationship with a type nine and what did that feel like? How did that, how did that work? Um, is that feel right for you? You know, and, and you can, um, you know, at least understand and, 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 um, navigate those relationships a little bit better when you have that framework to, to work with. Awesome stuff. So as folk have been listening to this, Matt, I'm pretty certain they're thinking, I need to get a copy of Teamwork 9.0. I need to find out a little bit more about the Enneagram. And of course, you've got a bunch of resources that can help them. Where's the best place that we can send them so they can connect with your work? Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. So uh, my website is evolutionaryteams.com. Dot com so that's all one word evolutionary teams and um and there you'll find um you know s- some resources about it. there's a complimentary assessment enneagram assessment that you're welcome to take there um and also uh you can find out information about uh, teamwork 9.0 and then i i blog and share you know different topics on leadership and decision making and teamwork and i'm doing a series of um, interviews with leaders who are using their essentially self-awareness about their emotional state um, in their leadership practice and how that motivates, inspires, and and drives their leadership behaviors. So it's really fascinating stuff. Great. We'll put those links and the links to your social media connections as well in our show notes so folk can connect with you as soon as they finish listening to this. Well, thank you so much, Steve. I really appreciate it. Matt, it's been fascinating talking. I am incredibly excited about the different dynamics that Teamwork 9.0 brings about and actually how that can help other teams become more effective in their work that they do. And thank you for coming and sharing your stories and, and being part of our community on the Leadership Hacker podcast. Well, thank you so, so much, Steve. I really enjoyed the conversation. Me too. Thanks, Matt. I want to sign off by saying a thank you to you for joining us on the show too. We recognize without you there is no show, so please continue to share, subscribe and like, and continue to get in touch with us with the great news stories that we share every week. And so that we can continue to bring you great stories, please make sure you give us a five-star review where you can, and share this podcast with your friends, your teams, and your communities. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Leadership Hacker, Leadership Hacker on YouTube, and on Instagram, the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And if that wasn't enough, you can also find us on our website, leadership-hacker.com. Tune in to next episode to find out what great hacks and stories are coming your way. That's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush, and I've been your Leadership Hacker.